You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. My name is Phil Lyon. I am the managing director of the Herbert J. Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies. Um, the, fourth, the first of the of those words, Russia, gets a lot of attention here at the University, but Eastern Europe um, is important too. So we are very, very pleased today to welcome Max Bergholt. It's the first time I've seen him in, I think, 10 years. We probably, 11, uh, 11 maybe. maybe, we met while we were both Fulbrighters. Um, at the uh, Zag- at the archives in Zagreb, uh, to about ten years ago or eleven years ago. So he looks good. Um, he's so held, you. He's held up well. <laughs> uh, Great suit. He even got a job out of uh, out of his dissertation. So we're very pleased to have him back. Um, he's going to present his uh, first book today. Not I'm sure not his last book, um, but first I'll just briefly read an introduction of him. Uh, Max Bericholtz is the associate is an associate professor of history at Concordia University in Montreal. His research has won support from the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation and the American Council of Learned Societies, and we should also say the Fulbright Program. This was an abbreviated list. An abbreviated yes, list. But well, Fulbright. Yeah. Fulbright as well. Um, and his articles have been published by, in journals such as the American Historical Review, um, recently as November 19, uh, 2016. Cornell University has just published his book, Violence as a Generative Force, Identity, Nationalism, and Memory in a Balkan Community, and we are very lucky to have him today. Thanks very much. Thanks, uh, thanks to Phil for that nice introduction and to the Ellison Center uh, for the uh, invitation to be here today, uh, as well as to Professor James Felek for uh, his role in helping to organize uh, this event and to, uh, to Val uh, Petrovna for, um, Petrova, I should say, for helping with all the logistics and to all of you for coming here today. I really appreciate uh, your interest. So in the next 45 minutes or so, uh, maybe slightly longer. What I want to do is talk about this book that I've just published at the end of November of 2016. And I'm going to do so in three ways today. Um, so I'll do this and then we'll have time for a question and answer afterward. Um, first, I want to talk about, I want to tell you a bit of the story as to how I came to the book's subject. Uh, and I'll say a bit about the research process. Uh, second, I'll, tell, I'll briefly tell part of the book's main story. Uh, it's a large book, I can't tell everything, but there's one part I've selected uh, to tell you about today. And finally, I'm going to finish with a few comments about the book's contributions uh, in two ways. First, the scholarly contributions. And second, what I take to be the main contribution to contemporary politics uh, in this part of the Balkans today. So why would this book be useful to people living in this part of the world uh, who carry this history on their backs? Uh, and I, I want to say a few words. I'll close with a few words about that. Um, so the moment this journey began, uh, toward this book was not long after, I think, the last time we saw each other, uh, which was in Croatia. That summer of 2006, I took a train to Sarajevo, where I began what was supposed to be the last leg of my research for my doctoral dissertation, uh, looking for a case study to add to my dissertation uh, about Bosnia and Herzegovina. So on an afternoon in September 2006, I happened to be in the archive, the state archive of Bosnia and Herzegovina, which is located in Sarajevo. And I was conducting research about 
how local communities were trying to remember the intercommunal violence of the Second World War. So in that part of the world, the years 1941 to 1945. And I was interested in how communities dealt with the legacy of this violence in the 1950s and 1960s. And I had previously done a lot of research in 2004 and 2005 in Serbia and Croatia. And so I was trying to wrap up my research by finding a third case study to go along with these other two uh, about Bosnia. So on this afternoon, the weather was nice like today, maybe a little bit warmer. Uh, I was unexpectedly given access to one of the archive's basement storage depots. Um, the archivist let me in for about 15 minutes to look around because they had grown very tired of dealing with my constant requests ever since I had arrived to look at files related to a certain socio-political organization. Um, I knew the documents were in this archive because I had done all this research the previous two years. These documents were kept by the communist authorities. They were cataloged in the 60s and 70s and even 1980s. I had looked at them in Serbia. I had looked at them in Croatia. But in Bosnia, the archivists kept telling me they either didn't exist uh, or they simply couldn't find them. And so I went to the archive every day and just pestered them. Um, it was one of the first times in my life I learned that by being annoying um, on a daily basis, you can actually accomplish certain things um, if you balance it with a certain level of politeness. Um, so finally, one of the archivists simply just said, like, let that guy down in the basement enough with him already. I can't deal with him. So they took me down in the basement and opened up this steel door. Uh, they turned on the lights, but only a few of the light bulbs actually worked. Uh, and then the archivist handed me a flashlight and simply said, I think what you're looking for might be down there. Uh, and I was staring basically into this dark room, and she said, you have 15 minutes. And I, I looked into this room, which had enough material for about 100,000 doctoral dissertations. And I remember just asking into the darkness, why only 15 minutes? And I heard her as she was walking away. She's like, because I'm going to coffee with my colleagues in 15 minutes. This is all the time you get. So I started sifting through these documents and looking as I walked up and down the shelves with this flashlight. And the handwritten words on a handful of blue folders that I passed by stopped me in my tracks. And they looked almost identical to these folders here. But the words on the particular folders that I came across had something unusual about them. On them were written, Sites of Mass Executions, 1941 to 1945. And I had stumbled across a confidential communist government investigation that had been compiled during the first half of the 1980s. So these were relatively new documents. According to the law in Bosnia and Herzegovina on the use of archival documents, at least 30 years have to go by from the time the document was generated to the time a researcher can look at it. So it was 2006. These documents had been created between 1983 to 1986, so it certainly wasn't time um, legally for me to look at these documents. With that in mind, I pulled them off the shelf. I put them up to my chest uh, and then said I was done with my search and we walked back up to the reading room. The papers inside, as I discovered during the next hour after I cut the string that was holding them together, like the string you see here, mentioned repeatedly a town and a region in Bosnia that I had actually never heard of. This town was called Kulinvakov and its surrounding region, all of which straddle the historic border between northwestern Bosnia and Croatia. And so just to give you a sense of where this region is, it's this, it's this area right here. And this is a picture of what the town of Kulinvakov actually looks like, taken in 2008 from a ridge nearby. At the heart of this region is the Una River, 
which you can see flowing through the center of Kulin Vakuf. Due to a specific content of sediment in the water, it flows out of these underground caverns. And the pure quality of the water. The Una often appears emerald green when the sun beams down, as you can kind of see here in the photograph. It generally flows along very softly. So if you were to walk to the center of this bridge and close your eyes, you would simply just hear the water quietly gurgling and bubbling. It's a very peaceful sound. Here and there, it bursts over these spectacular waterfalls in certain moments. But mostly, the Una flows along very gently. And it's visually mesmerizing because of these colors that are constantly transforming as the sun moves across it. The documents inside those blue folders from the basement told that during two days and nights in early September 1941, this stunning natural world had transformed into a site of mass death. The documents indicated that approximately 2,000 people, men, women, and children, described as of the Muslim population, were killed by their neighbors, who were described as insurgents and Serbs. The documents offered only a very brief glimpse into this multi-ethnic community's sudden descent into extreme violence. But I immediately had a very strong feeling, almost a physical sensation, as I was looking at these documents, that I had stumbled across a story of great significance. And it eventually grew into this book, which you can see right here. This is the cover, and that's the book in front of you. And the major reorientation that started to take place that day, first in the basement, and later in the reading room, ultimately dragged me away from my original interest of studying how people remember violence and pushed me toward the challenge of trying to explain the causes, dynamics, and effects of violence, particularly local violence. And slowly, my interest came to focus on a 48-hour period during which these 2,000 men, women, and children disappeared. I learned that some had been shot to death. Others had been butchered with farm tools. Some were drowned in those beautiful emerald green waters of the Una River, while others were thrown into the darkness of deep vertical caves. And I soon became fixated on reconstructing and explaining those terrifying 48 hours when all of this killing took place. But doing so pushed me further and further into the past. So I learned that those 48 hours could not be explained without first reconstructing the destruction of the Kingdom of Yugoslavia in April of 1941 and the subsequent creation of the fascist independent state of Croatia and its policies of ethnic discrimination and violence during the spring and summer of that year. Explaining those transformations led me back to political struggles in Yugoslavia, the first Yugoslavia, as it's called, between the 1930s and into the 1920s, and excavating the dynamics of social conflict as well as social cohesion during the interwar period led me back to the period of Austro-Hungarian rule from 1878 to 1918, and then to the preceding centuries of Ottoman rule, during which the town of Kulin Vakuf was first established on an island in the middle of the Una River at the end of the 17th century. So I kept turning back in time in pursuit of evidence. 
And once I felt that I had excavated nearly everything I could find about the history of this town and community, I then switched directions and began trying to write the story forward in time, toward the summer of 1941, and finally returning to where I began, to those 48 hours in September of 1941 and what took place. But doing that presented me with a huge challenge. And that is how to tell the history of a community in which shocking levels of intercommunal violence would take place, but without doing so in a deterministic way. As if local residents seemed destined to destroy one another because of cultural differences and something called nationalism. And the difficulty of telling this story with a sense of historical contingency rather than historical determinism can be better appreciated if one looks at the scholarly literature about mass violence in this part of Europe, particularly during 1941. So until very recently, historians have devoted surprisingly little attention to explaining the intercommunal violence that took place in the fascist independent state of Croatia, which was the new state that the Kulin Vakuf was incorporated into uh, in April of 1941. It's usually referred to uh, by the acronym NDH, or Nezavisna Država Hrvatska. So the independent state of Croatia is the NDH. This is what that state looked like. And you can see where the Kulin Vakuf region was, uh, was, was located. So among the works in the South Slavic languages that approach this particular history, that is to say of intercommunal violence in 1941, a striking characteristic of these works is how the description of violence overwhelmingly substitutes for the explanation of violence. Many authors decontextualize killings by stringing together acts of violence against a particular ethnic group from different locations and times, but without accounting for their temporal and geographical variation. And this approach makes it easier to argue for the importance of a supposedly deeply rooted nationalist ideology as the driving force of violence. Among historians outside of the Balkans, there have been a number of illuminating studies published particularly during the last decade on the history of the NDH. And I'm thinking here of a scholar who was just here, uh, Emily Grebel, uh, as well as another important scholar working in Sweden, Tomislav Dulic, and there are others who've written these newer works. And yet, when it comes to explaining the causes, dynamics, and effects of intercommunal violence, this newer literature offers surprisingly few answers. And part of the problem is that while this newer work has much to say about life in the few urban centers of the NDH and about the actions of political elites, it is striking how little we still know about the countryside of the NDH, places like Kulinvakov. Despite a consensus among scholars, among nearly every scholar, that the majority of intercommunal violence actually took place in the rural localities. And this hole in the literature on the NDH is perplexing, given the shift in research on violence during the past decades in other contexts, such as South Asia, Africa, and other parts of Eastern Europe, in which the local level, particularly the local level in the countryside, has become a central lens for analysis. 
So regarding the NDH, part of the problem has to do with the kinds of research questions that have retained importance for scholars. Historians tend to focus on subjects that have long dominated this field, such as how many people were killed in the NDH, whether certain killings constitute genocide, the wartime experience of ethnic groups, and there are other questions that have long been uh, the central focus for this field. These questions all have their place, but their continued prominence helps to maintain a certain inward focus in this field. And as a consequence, there's been a lack of engagement among these historians with broader scholarly debates, particularly debates in the social science literature on political violence currently taking place about violence in various contexts throughout the, throughout the world. So this literature in many ways still has a very provincial focus to it. To surmount these challenges, I chose to employ a dual approach in the research and writing of this book. On one hand, I wanted to make the rural community, that is to say the Kulin-Vakov region, the central analytical lens. On the other hand, I wanted to build a bridge, an analytical bridge, between the specific history of this community and debates about the dynamics of violence in various contexts throughout the world. So my challenge was to write a very rich micro-history that could engage a number of debates in the field of political violence, but would also avoid getting bogged down in the provincial infighting and historical determinism that is common to many scholars who write about violence in this particular part of the Balkans. And the best way forward, it seemed to me, was to use the snapshot that I discovered in those blue folders that afternoon of the killings in Kulinvakov as a micro lens or a small window through which to embark on a search for questions of global significance. And the two main questions that frame this book are what causes intercommunal violence among neighbors in multi-ethnic communities? How does such violence affect their relations and identities? So violence as a generative force represents the culmination of my search uh, over almost 10 years for answers to these questions. The book is built on three types of sources, three main categories of sources. Documents from 12 archives in Serbia, Croatia, and Bosnia and Herzegovina, published and unpublished memoirs by participants in this history, and oral history interviews with participants who were still alive, as well as some of their children. So the archives provided extremely valuable material for the writing of this book, particularly the real-time documents that could take us deeply into the world of 1941 as events were unfolding hour by hour, day by day. But that type of research vividly revealed to me the, the more general challenges of conducting research on mass violence in this post-war and politically divided part of Europe. So in the archive of Bosnia and Herzegovina, for example, I often struggled greatly to access certain kinds of information and even find out what was available in the archive because I actually had to deal with three different directors of the same archive, the existence of which reflects conditions in today's Bosnia in which all national level institutions have to have representatives of the three officially constituent, three officially recognized constituent peoples. 
So what that meant was sometimes I would call the archive and ask if I could speak with the director. And the voice on the other end would laugh for a moment and simply say, which director are you looking for? The Serb, the Croat, or the Muslim? And all of these directors, I soon found out, were locked, more or less, in various struggles with each other, which often made it difficult to further, which, which often made it even more difficult to access basic information, like what kinds of documents were held in the archive. There were certain directors, not many, but some whom I encountered, particularly in northwestern Bosnia, in Bihać, the town you can see just to the northwest of the Kulinvakov region, who made it their personal mission to obstruct my research. Um, there was one particular director of the archive in Bihać um, who basically denied my requests to look at the documents in his archives starting in 2006 all the way till the fall of 2008. And then finally, because I had traveled all the way from Toronto uh, under his promise that I could look at these documents, let me in, drove me out to the storage depot and opened up the door to a room and said, you have two hours to look around in here. and kind of laughed for a moment, and then walked out to his car, and I heard him yell after he rolled down the car window and simply said, I'll be back, I'm going to lunch now. Um, so, and in this particular case, after being stunned by just the, the, the enormous proportion of this stuff with no shelves and no real order, uh, I began searching furiously through this pile, moving box by box from one side to the other as the seconds and minutes ticked away, and eventually I discovered about 80 documents that were of use to me. 80, I should say, 80 boxes. Uh, and then the director fought me for another month, not physically, but sim simply said that you're not allowed to take these out of the archive. Um, and so it took another month to actually gain access to actually read these. So this was an enormous struggle to A, find out what was available, and B, uh, gain access to it in some of the archives. In others, there was uh, quite a bit of, uh, of assistance. Some of the other sources I used to write this book were unpublished manuscripts which had been written during, largely during the 1970s and 1980s by people who had survived those 48 hours of killing in Kulinvakov. So there were some people who began writing their memoirs and even going around and interviewing people, um, which was actually dangerous research for them to conduct politically, uh, during the 1970s and 1980s while a lot of participants in, in this story were still alive. None of this had ever been published. Uh, as I began doing the interviews with people, people started talking about, well, so-and-so worked on this. I think his family members may have these documents. No, these people were displaced in 1993. You might have to go to this city. You might have to go to that city. And a lot of this research involved me literally going to old phone books and calling up people with last names, one after the other, after the other, after the other. Hi, my name is Max Burkholz. I'm a historian. Is your grandfather this person? No. And I would start again until finally I would locate some of these families. Amazingly enough, some of these had been preserved. They were in shoeboxes in closets that had been kept. And when I would go find these people, after a few hours of discussion, they would usually let me take them out and photocopy them. And these documents, uh, these memoirs were actually very valuable. Some of them were based on archival research as well. So I was able to evaluate how serious the, the studies actually were. And many of them were quite serious. And then there were people I interviewed in this region. In Kulinvakov, in the town, but also in the villages nearby. And when I say nearby, I mean within about a 25-kilometer circle. This was very difficult work. At first, most people assumed that I actually wasn't what I said I was. They didn't believe I was a historian. Um, they believed, since I was a foreigner who spoke their language fluently, that I absolutely was working for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia at The Hague, gathering information on war crimes trials. Um, 
Or if I was able to dispel their belief in that, then they were sure I worked for the CIA. Even though I didn't show up in a suit or anything like that at all. Uh, more often than not, however, people were willing to share their stories. I was actually surprised by how forth, forthright people were. Once I started asking questions, the conversation usually unfolded and lasted many hours. This part of the research was challenging, very challenging, because everything I heard was screened through the most recent conflict. So I was interested in 1941 and the years that followed, into the 1950s, into the 1960s. But the way people told their stories was profoundly screened through what they had been through between 1992 and 1995 during the war in Bosnia, or 1991 to 1995, the war in Croatia. <clears throat> there was an older woman, for example, who lived on a ridge not far from where I'd taken the photograph of Kulin Vakuf, lived alone in a partially destroyed house. Her testimony was fascinating and important. Her father had been one of the few people who had survived one of the massacres during those 48 hours. She had four sons, three of whom had been killed between 1992 and 1995. And I could tell pretty much every time that I sat and met with her that every single question I was asking her was also hurting her in some profound way, which caused me to actually withdraw from conducting oral history interviews for a while because I had a very serious dilemma as to whether or not my need to find information was worth the damage I might be causing to people. Um, who were not simply data in libraries, but real people who had been through things that I could only imagine. There was a husband and wife in a village not far from Kulin Vakuf, both of whom shared fascinating insights with me that they had heard from their parents about this violence that had taken place in 1941. These interviews were, became extremely challenging once it became clear to me that the husband had actually participated in ethnic cleansing operations against the population of Kulin Vakuf, where I had been just a few days earlier interviewing people. So I was talking with people who had committed very serious acts of violence. So the main challenge with all of these interviews was to avoid being overly sympathetic, which was difficult, and to also avoid being overly judgmental, uh, which was also extremely demanding and difficult, uh, even not just from a professional standpoint, but from an emotional standpoint. So when it came to obtaining sources for this book, each kind presented serious challenges. And there were more than a few moments when it felt like uh, the project had hit a wall, that I wasn't going to be able to find any more data, that I wasn't going to be able to advance anything further. For example, with that archive director. Um, I walked out of his office a few days after I discovered these 80 boxes. He slammed the door and I heard him, aside from cursing me, uh, say basically to a colleague, that guy will never get anything from us. But I had luck because at certain moments, local people, because I was willing to spend a lot of time in the region and I refused to leave, that local people at certain moments intervened to help me without me actually asking them. So one woman who worked in this particular archive simply decided on her own, on her own time, to drive her car out to the storage depot and pick up the documents and arranged for me to be able to read them in a local museum. She just did this for me. And when I was trying to find people to speak with in these villages, I happened to come across one woman whose husband had been arrested in 1992 and then executed, who was very, very distraught about what she had been through, but very much felt that the history of this region needed to be researched in a serious way, and literally would sometimes take me around to people's houses and introduce me to them, giving me access to people I never would have found on my own. So ordinary people made the difference in many ways in this region in bringing this book to life. So that's all I want to say about how I came to the topic and, um, and the sources and the research process. 
Um, I want to turn now toward the story of the book, or at least a part of the story of the book, and particularly the climax of the book, the violence during the summer of 1941. I'm going to talk about that for a little while, and then I'll finish with uh, the book's contributions. So prior to 1941, there existed in this particular region the entwinement of religious and ethnic differences with socioeconomic cleavages because of the Ottoman Empire. So on one side, there was a class of Muslim landowners, and on the other, a large group of peasant tenants who were mostly Orthodox Christians, along with some Catholics. These long-term agrarian-based divisions and even tensions, however, had not produced a long history of conflict and violence, particularly violence in this region. Prior to 1941, and this surprised me once I actually did the research, I only discovered two instances of attempted and actual violence in this region prior to 1941. There was a peasant rebellion that took place between 1875 and 1878, in which there was some intercommunal violence. And there was some violence in the aftermath of the formation of the first Yugoslavia in 1918, known as the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes. The government had instituted the Declaration of Agrarian Reform, which was to give land to those who tilled the land, which caused some Christian peasants, particularly Orthodox Christians, to rise up and attack their Muslim landlords. But everywhere I went while I was researching the history of what I thought would be a lot of violence in this region, I was also discovering evidence of inter-ethnic cooperation and solidarity. So while some of those Orthodox peasants came in 1918 to the town of Kulinvakov to attack their Muslim landlords, I discovered that a group of local people had stopped them and turned them away. And that group was led by the local Serbian Orthodox priest, who stopped his own so-called brothers from attacking the Muslims. There were also stories I read about of local Serbs or local Orthodox Christians who guarded their Muslim landlords during this period of instability after 1918, which went on for several years, sometimes day and night, making sure they would not be attacked because they had had cordial relations for many years, if not longer. During the existence of the first Yugoslavia between 1918 and 1941, there certainly was some inter-ethnic tension in this region. But perhaps more common was intra-ethnic political conflict, meaning among people considered to be of the same nominal ethnicity. Much of the tension at the village level in this region was interpersonal. People came into conflict with each other over the use of natural resources, cutting trees and forests, the use of streams, the use of fields for grazing livestock. Sometimes these conflicts had an inter-ethnic dimension, but certainly not always. In short, the evidence that we have from the archives does not suggest that deep-seated ethnic hatred was dominant among most people at the level of the local community prior to 1941. For many people, everyday life was full of peaceful intermixing. There was a market that took place every Thursday in Kulinvakov, which brought people together from all different religious affiliations. There were soccer match matches that were played, particularly during the 1920s and 1930s. Here's a picture of one of the teams. This team was called Mladost, youth, which included members on the same teams of people of different nominal religions, 
uh, ethnicities. So here we have people who would have been considered to be Serb Orthodox along with Muslim neighbors, all of whom were close friends and played together. So rather than identify the enormous changes that took place between April and July 1941 as rooted largely in antagonistic social relations, we have to appreciate how outside actors could upend local ecosystems of intercommunal existence, coexistence. And it was the access invasion of the Kingdom of Yugoslavia in April 1941 and the subsequent establishment of the independent state of Croatia, which unexpectedly presented an opportunity to those who consider themselves to be Croats. And some chose to join a group of extreme Croatian nationalists who called themselves Ustasha's. The Ustasha's were a small group of fascists whom the Axis powers installed as the leaders of the independent state of Croatia. In the Kulinvakov region, the Ustasha ideology of building an ethnically pure Croatian nation state actually does not appear to have been of much importance to the local Muslims and Catholics who joined the Ustasha's. The archives show that there were about 110 local men who joined the Ustasha's. They constituted less than 1% of the population, which was considered to be nominally Muslim and Catholic. Most were peasants in their 20s and 30s. There were a handful of merchants. And to give you a sense of how long-term antagonistic relations on an ethnic axis do not appear to have been a key factor that led these local men to join the Ustasha's. We can pause for a minute and consider the man who became the leader of the local Ustasha's in this region, and in particular in the town of Kulinvakov. His name was Miroslav Matijevich. He was nominally Catholic, and he ran a tavern that was directly next to the Una River. Here he is right here. This is a photograph of a wedding that took place in this region in 1938. So just three years prior to 1941. Here we can see Matijevich along with his neighbors getting ready to celebrate. Uh, you can see the festive moods, these two men holding jugs of local brandy most likely. And here you can't see it very well uh, because of the light, but this is a plate with a roasted pig's head on it. So they're getting ready to have a nice party soon. Uh, in this photograph are not just Catholics, but also uh, people who would be considered to be nominally Serb Orthodox. So if Matijevich, had, there's no evidence to suggest that he was a member of the Ustasha movement prior to 1941, and if he had held deep hatred for his Serb Orthodox neighbors, it's hard to believe he would be celebrating weddings with them. Uh, and he wasn't the only one like this. So rather than being driven by a long-term commitment to nationalist politics, Matijevich along with the other hundred or so men who joined the Ustasha's, appeared to have joined, at least according to the evidence, for three main reasons. First, to settle personal scores with certain neighbors over the use of natural resources. Again, water, fields, forests. Second, to take advantage, the situational advantage, of the opportunity to steal. And third, in a smaller number of cases, to reverse losses that some people had endured, particularly in 1918 and shortly thereafter. So some Muslim landlords did lose land, and some uh, Catholics who had been employed in the civil service were dismissed and replaced with those who would have been considered to be Serb Orthodox. 
The central leaders of the NDH during May and June 1941 began using what could be called selective violence to try and remove what they considered to be the Serb population from this region. In the Kulinvakov region, local Ustashas began arresting prominent men, stealing from them, and in some cases, they executed these individuals and usually disposed of their bodies in deep vertical caves, like this one. They hoped that most of these killings, these disappearances, these arrests and then disappearances, would induce the rest of the perceived Serb population to flee this region. But most did not. Instead, many simply packed up what they could and fled to the nearby forests in the mountains. And this caused fear among the local Ustashas. They were afraid that there was going to now be a large-scale Serb rebellion. And so, by early July, they decided to carry out preemptive attacks on certain Serbian villages, particularly between July 1st and 3rd, 1941. And it was during these so-called defensive attacks that local Ustashas began employing violence that was more than just selective. They began committing massacres in which they attacked and killed everyone they could find in these villages, not just men, but also women, children, and the elderly. But a significant amount of evidence reveals that as this violence began to unfold in May, in June, and especially in July 1941, what also emerged simultaneously were a large number of instances of inter-ethnic rescue. So in many cases, these local Ustashas, their relatives were not in favor of this violence that was taking place. And they would, when they would hear that their relatives were going to attack a village the next day, some of them would get up in the morning and go on their own to that village and warn everyone to run to the forest and hide. In some cases, when people would survive the massacres, they would be taken in by their Catholic and Muslim neighbors, led to safety, or sometimes sheltered for weeks and even months. Just to give you an example of how widespread this rescue was, in the town of Kulinvakov, there were just over 100 or so residents who would have been considered to be Orthodox prior to the Ustasha takeover of power. Half of them survived. Uh, this wave of violence due to their, their neighbors of different religions intervening to save them. So all of this is to say that many Muslims and Catholics were not united behind the violence um, of their so-called brothers, uh, the Ustashas. Nonetheless, by late July, it seems that were, there were about between six to 700 victims of this violence. And the Ustasha violence had transformative effects. And among them, the most important could be called the rapid collective categorization of the other among much of the victim populations, population. So for many of those defined as Serbs and thus victims, the Ustasha violence transformed most Muslims and Catholics from neighbors and individuals into Ustashas, and therefore enemies. And in the aftermath of these Ustasha attacks, many of those defined as Serbs now wanted revenge against all those whom they perceived to be Croats. And I'll tell you a story that can make this dynamic uh, perhaps more understandable. The day after one of the first attacks in the region, on July 1st, 1941, two of the men who survived, two Orthodox Christian, uh, Serb Orthodox Christian men who survived, 
entered, left a forest and entered into a meadow. And across the meadow, they saw one of their Catholic neighbors, a woman whose name was Stana Pavicic. They knew each other prior to this violence. They were neighbors. They knew each other by their first names and last names and as neighbors. She looked up and saw them across the meadow. They saw her. And instead of calling out to her by Stana or by Komshe or Komshenitse, neighbor, they simply yelled out to her and said, you Croats are filling us, filling us in, or throwing us into deep vertical caves. When our time comes, we will do the same to you. And so through the evidence of interactions like that, you can see how individuals had been subsumed into these collective categories, these collective antagonistic categories, as a result of the violence. There were no longer individual names. There were Ukroats, even though it was only one person across the, across the meadow. And of course, there was a call for revenge on an ethnic access. And there were other instances that propelled this violence forward or this, collect, this process of collective categorization and subsequent violence in very terrifying ways. So not long after that instance, a few weeks later, in one of these pits, not this one, but another one, several men had been thrown in, one of whom had been shot in the head, another one who just jumped in uh, rather than be first shot or cut, or have his throat cut. They had survived their fall about 30 meters into this cave. They were still alive. Several of their neighbors, uh, Serb Orthodox neighbors, came from the forest and came to the edge of the pit and called down into it and said, is anyone alive? They yelled it several times. Is anyone alive? Is anyone alive? And a voice came calling out, save me. And they managed to pull these two men out, who then told what they had been through and who had committed the killings and how those, uh, the perpetrators of those killings were their neighbors. And the evidence shows how this transformed people's capacity to talk about their neighbors from individuals into, we're going to kill all of the Croats, we're going to kill all of the Ustashes. So the reason why I tell these stories is to show that this process at work among the survivors, that is rapid collective categorization, was extremely situational and contingent. It crystallized rapidly in certain moments in response to acts of violence. It did not exist among a majority of people prior to the violence. By the end of July, these survivors hiding in the forests did what the Ustashas were fearing. They launched a rebellion. And this quickly set off a civil war between these insurgents, those Serb Orthodox peasants hiding in the forests, and the Ustashas. In this region, like other parts of the former Kingdom of Yugoslavia and the NDH, there were small numbers of communists here and there. They wanted to form a multi-ethnic guerrilla army and fight not just against the Ustashas, but also against what they called the access occupiers. And they sought to lead these fighters who were launching these rebellions. But these communists had, had, had a series of very serious weaknesses. In this region, they were very few in number. There were perhaps 10 of them, maybe 15. They lacked influence and authority. Many of them had spent their lives, other than having been born in the region, they had lived in cities as industrial workers or had gone to university. Some of them had studied law. So they didn't have a lot of up-to-date, close personal connections with people in the region. And most of these people launching the rebellion, who had suffered such terrible losses at the hands of their neighbors on an ethnic axis, they had no desire at all to collaborate across ethnic lines in fighting guerrilla warfare. And of course, doing so, creating that multi-ethnic resistance movement was a cornerstone of the communist approach. The insurgents in this region were bound together by a need to fight for survival. And many of them 
had a powerful urge to take revenge against all those whom they perceived to be Croats. So against all Muslims, against all Catholics. The few communists in this region were opposed to this kind of collective revenge, but they were weak, as I just said. And their weaknesses can be seen vividly by just looking at some of the attacks that the insurgents launched, which began during the first week of August, 1941. So one of the first attacks they launched was in a village not far from Kulinvakov, a village called Vrtoce, which was on a plateau uh, above, above Kulinvakov. In this town, this, this, was, this was the village where Miroslav Matejevich, the leader of the Ustashas, had been born, and it's where his parents lived. His father, Josip Matejevich, ran this tavern, which was also a store. When the insurgents attacked Vrtoce, the first thing they did was go and find Josip Matejevich and his wife. They brought them out in front of the rest of their neighbors and they cut off their heads. They put their heads on top of sticks that they had cut off of trees and then walked around the village holding their heads on sticks while they killed everyone else in the village they could find, every other Catholic they could find. The few communists that were in this region were powerless to stop this massive uh, wave of vengeance that was taking place. And so there were other instances of this kind of, uh, this cascading violence uh, that was taking place uh, as a form of revenge. After each one of these attacks, the insurgents' strength grew and grew. More and more men joined them. And when they took over villages like this, they amassed more weapons. By late August, the insurgents' strength was much greater because of this. The Ustashas and Kulinvakov knew they were outnumbered. They knew they were outgunned. And so during the first week of September 1941, they decided they were going to flee the region. And they ordered the entire remaining Muslim population of about 5,600 people to go with them. No one was allowed to stay. A couple of young Muslim communists stayed behind. They managed to cut out a piece of red cloth. They climbed up in the mosque in Kulinvakov and held it from the minaret to try and show the insurgents that they were communists like them. Everyone else fled. And they did so on the morning of September 6, 1941, at dawn. They were fleeing to the town of Bihaj, which was about 50 kilometers away. They managed to climb through the switchbacks up the hills for several hours. And then at a certain point, insurgents along the edge of the forest began ambushing them and shooting into the column. During the next hour or two, they shot to death perhaps three to 500 people, most of whom were unarmed. There was a gun battle near the front of the column. The Ustashas managed to break through the first part of the ambush, and with them came about 3,100 of these refugees. And that group continued on to Bikach, and they arrived. The insurgents captured about 2,000 people who were left behind. During the afternoon of September 6th, they ordered them to return the way they had come, back to Kulinvakov, down the switchbacks. And it was in Kulinvakov during the next 48 hours where they killed another 1,500 people. According to the sources, revenge, rather than belief in some kind of nationalist political ideology, was a central motivation among those whom committed these killings. But the killings, interestingly, did not begin immediately. Rather, there were, specific, there were specific situational dynamics that set off the violence at a certain point, which began on a mass scale in the, on the evening of September 6th and during the night and into the day of September 7th. So one of the first things that happened after refugees returned among that group of insurgents were a group of what I've called the advocates of restraint, 
some of those who were receptive to this communist ideology, who did not want collective revenge against everyone on an ethnic axis. They wanted to simply uh, take revenge against the Ustashes, those who had committed violence, but not against everyone else. Some of those individuals left the region. They had heard about other battles breaking out, and they felt they were needed elsewhere. So some of the advocates of restraint, restraint left. Some of the men they placed in charge demanded that the prisoners show them where some of the mass graves were of their relatives and neighbors in Kulinvakov, of Serb Orthodox peasants who had been executed. They ordered those prisoners to begin exhuming those bodies that night. So you can imagine the atmosphere. The advocates of restraint leave. Some of the prisoners are now ordered to begin digging up bodies that had been killed just a few weeks earlier. And the insurgents who were left began searching among those bodies to see if they could identify anyone. While this is taking place, Local Orthodox peasants heard that the town had fallen to the insurgents and began coming down out of their hiding places to Kulinvakov, distraught and enraged. And they began searching through these bodies as well. Some of the insurgents began breaking into taverns where they found alcohol and they began drinking. So drunkenness was another factor that began to take place on the evening of September 6th. Some of the insurgents as well as the peasants, in addition to looking at these bodies and trying to identify their neighbors and relatives, started plundering the houses and stores that were left because everyone had simply just picked up what they could and left. There was a lot of material left in the town. And predictably, some of them began setting houses and stores on fire. And it was a combination of these factors that in the middle of the night led to executions starting to take place. And then the violence became a frenzy of killing. People were killed by drowning in the river. People were beaten to death with sticks as well as rocks. People were cut to death with farm tools, like axes. This is a picture from one of the bridges that goes over the Una River just to the north of Kulinvakov. On this bridge, several hundred women and children had been trapped. They, both, they found themselves on the bridge, and advancing from both sides were groups of peasants and insurgents with rifles, but axes and knives and rocks, and they were trying to kill them. At a certain point, the women began throwing their children into the water and then throwing themselves into the water were the, va the vast majority of whom drowned to death. Uh, they did this to avoid simply just being cut to death. Interestingly, about 200 meters away from this location, there was a dramatic act of rescue. So this is the old Gendarmeria station in Kulinvakov. This is a photograph I took of it in 2008. It's been raised to the ground since. It's now just an empty space. So the old police station in Kulinvakov. Here, while those killings were taking place on the bridge, some of those advocates of restraint, who themselves, Serb Orthodox peasants who had been rescued by their Muslim and Catholic neighbors earlier in the summer, they gathered together inside this building and around the side in the back, several hundred women and children, and protected them. There was a standoff between those who wanted to kill them and those who were protecting them, uh, where they were cocking their rifles at each other and waving knives back and forth. But they managed to protect these women and children and eventually brought them out of the region. Um, and through acts of rescue like that, during these 48 hours, about 500 people's lives were saved. Nonetheless, by the, by the evening of September 7th, the next day, the entire town had been burned to the ground. This is a photograph of Kulinvakov that was taken in October 1941, about a month after all this had taken place. This is what was left of the bridge over the Una River here. And you can see that every single house had been set on fire, every single building, and the mosque is gone. The next day, on the morning of September 8th, the last group of prisoners that was still alive, about 420 or so men and teenage boys, 
or marched about 15 kilometers down the road to a Serbian village called Martinbrod. Uh, it's the place where I took the photograph of those amazing waterfalls. Once they arrived, there were arguments among the insurgents guarding them about what to do with these, with these prisoners. Some insisted every single person here is an Ustasha, so every single one of them should be killed. A smaller number said, in this group there are maybe 20 Ustashas. They should be killed. Everyone else, those are our neighbors, those are our friends, set them free. These insurgents uh, started fighting with each other with fists, and the group that wanted to spare some of the men and boys' lives was eventually defeated. The side in favor of killing bound each prisoner's hands with wire and brought them in groups of about 20 uh, to a place uh, maybe five or six kilometers away from Martinbrod, to a place only known by local residents. To the, it was uh, just about 20 meters off the road. It was the opening of an enormous vertical cave, perhaps 50 meters deep. They brought these groups of men to the edge of the cave. They cut each man's throat at the edge of the cave and threw the bodies in. One man managed to get his hands free. That was the father of the woman who I, whom I uh, interviewed on top of that mountain. He managed to get his hands free, and he ran about 100 meters into the thick forest where he stayed silent for the next two and a half hours or so, listening as each one of his relatives and neighbors and friends were killed. So during the 48 hours from September 6th through 8th, 1941, these insurgents and peasants murdered nearly 2,000 of their Muslim neighbors. I talk about this story and I write about it in great detail in the book, and it's terrifying and disturbing, but I think it's worth engaging with because of the analytical insights it offers about the more general dynamics of mass violence. And so now I want to say a few words about the contributions and, and I'll finish. And here I want to come back to the book's main research questions. So the first was, what causes intercommunal violence among neighbors in multi-ethnic communities? So in this story, when strong situational incentives appeared in the local community to decisively solve economic and interpersonal problems, some neighbors chose to engage in violence on an ethnic axis. This violence tended to occur in locations where, and at times when, perceived security threats of those neighbors targeted for persecution was the highest. And while this violence was certainly instituted from above, it was also very much driven from below, especially in a context in which state control was weak and local autonomy over violence was strong. And these findings provide us with ways of accounting for why as well as when and where, neighbor, neighbors in local communities who have been peaceful, if not entirely conflict-free for long periods, might attack their neighbors in certain moments. In doing so, we do not have to assume a sense of long-term conflict among so-called ethnic groups. And we don't have to accept notions of a group's apparent traumatic history somehow mystically repeating itself. What is perhaps most striking in this history is the clear logic and rationality that drove some neighbors to attack each other on an ethnic axis. Okay, the second research question. How does violence affect identities and social relations in local multi-ethnic communities? This violence propelled 
multiple simultaneous transformations in the meaning of ethnic categories and boundaries in profound surges. And in doing so, the violence created new forms of local communities. The violence helped to create forces that sought to restrain killing, while creating new forms of power that sought to escalate killing. And taken together, the answers to both of these questions suggest a single overarching argument. Local intercommunal violence is not merely destructive in a host of ways. Rather, it can be an immensely generative force for the creation of social identities and configurations of power. So those are among the main findings that I think people like yourselves at major universities, research universities, will hopefully find useful in some way or another. And we can debate uh, what you think of these, and I'm happy to do so. But the last question that I think is worth considering today is what does a book like this have to offer people living in this part of the world that carry this traumatic history on their backs? So the book is now being translated, and I'm going to Bosnia soon to work with the translator to finish the final edits, and hopefully it'll be published by September or October of this year. Uh, it'll be a joint edition published by a publishing house in Serbia as well as Bosnia and Herzegovina. So one could say that calling attention to this photograph that I took in 2014 encapsulates what I see as the primary use of this book for people living in the shadow of this violent history that I'm trying to explain. So this was a monument built um, for a local, a youthful local communist whose name was Stojan Matic. And he came from this region. He was from a village called Nebluzzi, which is about 20 kilometers to the northwest of Kulinvakov, just across the border in present-day Croatia. His mother had been killed by the Ustashas in 1941. He became a member of the Communist Party and was one of those forces or advocates of restraint. He was not for collective revenge on an ethnic access. He wanted to fight the Ustashas, but he was also he tried very hard to protect his neighbors. That morning of September 6th, when the column was ambushed, Stalin Matic was there among the insurgents, firing his gun into the air, trying to get them to stop shooting, trying to stop them from killing their neighbors. So this photograph, and you can see people have come along in the meantime and fired bullets into his head. So these are the exit holes of the bullets. On the other side, there were many more bullets that were fired in, probably from an automatic weapon, that are lodged in his head. Uh, these are the ones that came all the way through. So the photograph vividly suggests how the process of engaging with the past is a conscious choice. Those who want us to see Stoyan Matic in a certain way today have clearly stated their position by firing these bullets into his head. But other stories about the violent past exist. We just have to be willing to uncover them, to listen to them, and to be willing to choose to tell them. So the history of the violent past is very much a choice. And in the same way, what we choose to imagine today and for the future, what people dare to allow themselves to dream about, those are also all choices. And the capacity to imagine a different reality today and for tomorrow will be enhanced if one has the capacity to imagine a different past. 
So that may sound straightforward, uh, maybe even easy. But in this part of Europe today, it is an enormous challenge, which is largely impossible for many people. This more recent violence of the 1990s has created a sense of historical consciousness in which historical contingency, the capacity to see a past in which people make choices, seems erased, silenced, maybe even destroyed. And instead, what one hears from taxi drivers, so if you fly to Belgrade or Sarajevo or Zagreb and you start telling the taxi driver, your taxi driver, that you're a historian, um, the thing you'll hear from the taxi driver soon enough is usually what passes in the region today for historical explanation. And what you would usually hear if you were in Belgrade, you'd hear the taxi driver say to you, ovde istoria se ponavlja. Or if you're in Croatia, the taxi driver would say, ovde povjest se ponavlja. Which means, here, history repeats itself. But history in this part of the Balkans, just like history anywhere in the world, does not mystically repeat itself. People make history, and they do so by making choices. So at the most general level, my book is about the need to more closely examine human choice, both in the making of history and also in the telling of history. And my hope is that one day people in this part of Europe might pick up this book, read this story, and perhaps the way that I've chosen to tell it might open up new vistas for imagining different pasts and different possibilities in the future. And in my telling of this history, identity, nationalism, and memory are often not what cause violence to wreck the lives of so many. Instead, far fewer people chose to perpetrate violence, and in so doing, they created and recreated highly antagonistic forms of identity, nationalism, and memory. And today they loom large in many people's lives in this part of the world. And they make an, ethnic, an ethnically divided present and future seem almost unavoidable. A lack of comprehension of how this fractured sense of historical consciousness comes to be places huge limits on the possibilities for changes in the present and future, and to move forward with a greater sense of possibility will first require looking back and reconsidering how we tell the story of the violent past. And it will require a new story that includes a much more heightened sense of the role of human choice in the making and telling of history. I'm going to stop there. Thanks. Thank you, Max. That was really, really interesting. So we have the room for uh, quite a bit longer. So um, I think we're going to move to some questions and answers right now. And um, Max is a professor, and he takes he teaches classes all the time. So I'll just let him. Sure. If you have questions or comments, uh, put your hand up, and I'll be happy to offer whatever insight I can uh, I can offer. Please go ahead. Thank you. That was a really powerful talk, and I find your thesis really compelling. But thanks. Um, I wonder if you could, so something that comes up for me thinking about different contexts in, in Central Europe in the same time period is the, um, I mean, especially 
you know, literature that I'm sure you're familiar with, but on like anti-Semitism in Germany after 33, and just how slow the the proceeding towards violence is, despite pre-existing group identities, and that and that in your case the turn to violence was so fast, and then it. So then I think about other cases like Jan Gross's work, or even Austria after the Anschluss work, where the pace is much more rapid, and I wonder if you're uh, how you account for that. Uh, why, why? execute, initially executing, so I understand like taking property and settling grievances, but then to execute the people right away like that is, doesn't happen in every case. Right, right. I mean, this is, this in many ways, I think, is the, is the next direction for research, not just on, on my particular case, but, but more, more generally, uh, and not just in Europe, but in many other cases, this question of variation. Right? So, I mean, why would violence explode so rapidly in certain cases and then in other cases require, or perhaps maybe not require, but nonetheless unfold over a much more steady uh, process, uh, period of time? So, I mean, I think in, in my particular case, one of the things that's interesting and perhaps counterintuitive is that the violence is more anarchic, chaotic, and explosive because the state is so weak. Right? So once the state actually empowers local people, gives them authority over the monopoly of violence to dispose of it in any way they want for the most part, um, so long as they're persecuting certain people categorized in a certain way. Uh, the violence very, very quickly takes on this, uh, this extremely terrifying nature with first executions and then at a certain point massacres. Some of, that is, some of that the state authorities didn't actually want because it was very destabilizing, but they simply didn't have the manpower to actually control these people they empowered in the localities. One of the great weaknesses of the Ustash is what they actually needed to build a state and didn't have the people to do it. Right? They didn't have the actual people to do it. So one of the things to think about, I think, going forward is to compare not just cases, uh, subnational cases, like say my region with four or five others where the violence may have unfolded either earlier or later, or where violence was not even practiced very much. Because the case of Kulin Vakuf, I think, is paradigmatic in certain ways, but in other ways it's not. It's an extremely violent case. right? One of the things that I do in one of the chapters of the book is actually uh, look at cases in which violence either didn't take place in certain villages or was stopped and actually successfully prevented. But of course, this needs to be done on a national level as well. Why are certain cases, um, why does the violence happen more, more rapidly in certain cases and slower in others? And I think one of the factors to consider is the relative strength or weakness of the state that actually is interested in removing a certain targeted population. I think counter, in a, perhaps counterintuitively, the stronger the state, Perhaps the slower and more steady and more planned the violence actually is, the weaker the state, the faster it actually happens. And one thing that's interesting in this case, I didn't talk about this in the presentation, but it's in the book, um, those local ustashas, once they, once they run out of um, people categorized as Serb Orthodox to persecute and particularly rob, they start robbing their own Catholic and Muslim neighbors. So that's also interesting as well in terms of just thinking about how important the, the, uh, the ethnic access actually is once people are empowered to use violence to do whatever they want. In this particular case, it began to spill over those particular categories as well. But I think, I think state strength is one of the key factors to, to actually consider. Um, uh, and then, of course, the international situation matters as well once you start looking at, at a comparison on that particular level. Okay. I think there was right next to you, there was a question, yeah. Yeah, I'll echo the class. It was a really great talk and gave me a lot to sort of chew over myself, um, especially in sort of comparative sense, thinking about you know how we identify like groups when we're talking about group conflict. Yeah. Um, and so my thought was, 
I'd be interested to hear if you had um, if you had conducted oral histories in different places um, for two reasons. So the idea then would be, um, did people frame things differently if they uh, were children of or grandchildren of people involved and living in um, this region still, if they're in Sarajevo, or if they or if they moved even farther afield, mm -hmm. um, and that's for two reasons. And, and one is the sort of like urban-rural difference, and the other one is um, so the migration experience, but also um, exposure to the '90s conflict, right? So if you're exposed to sort of personally that very um, sort of emphasized conflict, right, where you're reifying those boundaries and there's a as Rebecca would say, right? Right. Um, then are you now framing these things in a much more sort of ethnic access way than if you, like, at the time lived in, you know, even a sort of neighboring country and weren't personally experiencing that? It's a great question. And I think it's working in this particular context, but any in which could be considered multicultural, right? I mean, even in the United States, if just, you know, racial categories, for example. Um, you know, how do you, how do, how do we as researchers actually, you know, discover the ways in which people use, do not use this type of terminology? Um, it's very complicated because it, you have to even just think how you would pose a question. When I first started doing oral history interviews, um, I almost laugh when I listen to the, the transcripts or I'm, I'm, I sort of, you know, turn red to some extent. I listen to the questions I ask, you know, how were relationships here between you Serbs and those Muslims, you know? In other words, reifying the categories, putting the language in the, in the, essentially the mouths of the respondents and then so they would respond in the same way. Where I actually realized over a number of years, um, the great challenge is to actually um, let the sources do the talking or most importantly, not do the talking uh, around the issue of ethnicity, right? And so one of, the, one of the challenges I set out for myself was to try and write, to some extent, like a Brubakerian history, you know, to apply some of the suggestions that Brubaker makes, which are actually really interesting in a seminar format, but really hard to apply in the writing uh, of, uh, of a history over a long period of time in a multicultural setting, to let the sources do the talking whenever ethnicity is used. So in my book, I actually never use those categories myself, not once. Uh, on these pages. And I try to let the sources do it, and I had to police myself very closely to not use them in my oral history interviews with people. But absolutely, uh, your question about the 1990s and how that has affected people's capacity to talk about this violence. I mean, for example, just using the phrase insurgents, right? So in, in, the, in Bosnia, it would be ustanitsi, or ustanik, someone who rises up. So in the way in which this violence is talked about and the violence of people nominally Serb at this time against people nominally Muslim, the perpetrators are always talked about as so-called Chetniks, right, which is a Serb nationalist organization or, or a word for Serb guerrilla fighters for the most part that goes all the way back, you know, long before even the 19th century. Uh, but there was certainly different factions of them active during the Second World War. There was no faction act active in this region at all. And yet, People today, because of the violence during the 1990s, in which that word is used in a derogatory way to refer to people nominally Serb, wherever they may be, uh, by a lot of people, um, that's the way in which the history is told, which is already erroneous to begin with, because that faction wasn't even active here. So to even understand the perpetrators as these amorphous groups of persecuted people hell-bent on revenge is already something that you know, one has to pick through the testimonies to even find. And the documents are very useful as well, the real-time documents, to actually see what people were who was calling who what at the time. 
so it was an enormous task just to find those documents. And you can imagine for this type of, this place, which is to, for the most part in the middle of nowhere. Like when I first started telling people in Sarajevo that I was going to Kulinvakov, they would just say, Kulin what? Kulinshta? Gdeto. Like where the hell is that? And I would tell them and they would just be like, wow, that is like in a, in a, in a, really kind of funny ways they would say, like, that is truly in the, in the middle of nowhere. There's this phrase in Serbo-Croatian, like far away in the hills where, the, where only the wolves are screwing, right? <laughs> so, so, I mean, so, so, so in other words, like, to actually tell that history um, and not have these present-day conceptions of categories color the way in, which do, uh, way in which one does this, you know, requires finding every single shred of evidence that takes you as close as possible to the moments when it was actually unfolding which is very difficult because it was chaotic and a lot of stuff wasn't, pre wasn't preserved. But I think, to me, it's extremely important uh, not to do the talking of ethnic categorization in these types of conflicts because we lose sight of actually how those categories come to matter and not matter to people. When, whenever we take that easy uh, step of simply just saying, those people, let's call them Serbs. Well, did they call themselves that? that? Did they call themselves that? If so, let's find the document where we can show that. If, and if, in that case, let's cite it. If not, don't do it. Allow that to emerge in the actual study itself. And I think that's a huge challenge in writing about ethnicity and ethnic violence in these types of contexts. Uh, and the oral history, I think, is both a fascinating uh, entry point into it and a perilous terrain. Because one has to be extremely conscious of, um, you know, the mis, how should we say, the misrepresentations that people are legitimately, uh, you know, fall prey to today. It's, there's a reason why people use the word Chetnik to describe Serbs. Like, I understand that, but it doesn't help me only if it helps me understanding like, people's perceptions of the past rather than actually what people call themselves at this time. Does that help answer your question? Okay. Uh, I was going to ask you why you never said Chetnik in the talk, but you answered that. Okay. So I was at, let me just uh, matter question. Um, did the Muslims and the Catholics ever sort of turn on each other in this period, or were they always kind of together? Uh, no, there were actual, uh, there, were, there were quite a few tensions in the town of Kulinvakov because people were very much conscious of how the town itself had essentially the local ustashes had signed the death warrant for the town once they started this wave of violence. So there very much was there very much were serious tensions among them. But people were also terrified um, that if they actually stood up against people like Miroslav Matievich, um, that they would be killed. Um, there was some evidence of that of people uh, who did not want to actually go along with the ustashes, what the ustashes were doing, who intervened to stop acts of violence. There were a few cases in which those people themselves were killed. But I would say one of the things that's interesting here, like say compare this case to Rwanda. Like if you look at the research by Scott Strauss and some of the interviews that he's cited in an amazing book called Intimate Enemy, but also in his monograph um, on, on the genocide in Rwanda, the role of fear, the role of threats was so huge, at least according to the data that he has. Whereas in this case, um, the number of perpetrators was much smaller and the, and the, the level of intra-ethnic violence, so Catholic, Muslim, or let's say non-Ustasha, Ustasha, was much less. It seemed to be the strategy was much more kind of pull back and try not to be hurt and save neighbors at the same time or simply remain indifferent. Um, but there was definitely tension. But I would say in this particular case, not any kind of, you know, long-term, uh, you know, open physical conflict between the two groups, but certainly not approval because it had put the town in so much danger. Like people saw what was coming like weeks and even months in advance. They knew that their time was, you know, was coming at some point to be attacked. Yes. Well, my question is about the organization uh, of this person whose name I've, I've just forgotten. Stoyan Matic. 
Matic, yeah. okay, who uh, obviously is a, made a hero of the League of Communist Yugoslavia, uh, and he himself is one of the righteous people who, who tries to protect uh, the innocent from the uh, monsters uh, out there. And his organization, from what you were just saying at the beginning of your talk, had uh, appointed itself the collector, curator, and custodian of the of the documents, of the documentation of all of this. So my question is, are the, is, is the League of, of, why did the League of Communists fail to bring this information out the way you have. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, you know, here, here they, they, some of these people were among the righteous, and they collected the documents, and they preserved, and I'm sure some of those archivists came out of the, the, that communist period, the ones you were working with. Yeah. And, and they, yet the, so did, the question is, what did they do, do to this? How would you have, what would they, you recommend, for them to have done? What's their role in, in, in collecting and burying this history? Right, it's a great question. So, I mean, you know, we have a monument built for Stoyan Matic um, because he heroically tried to save some of these neighbors who were in great danger that day. So why not, why is this story only being told now? Like, why is this entire history, why was it buried? Why was I saying earlier that these participants who had survived these killings were not, uh, that they were not able to publish their histories in the 1970s and 1980s? So the main reason would be is that the vast majority of those who carried out these killings between September 6th and September 8th, 1941, eventually joined the partisan movement. Okay, so the Chetnik movement was not active in this region. Um, and eventually, a few of the perpetrators of these killings went over to a region called Dalmatia and eventually, uh, near the town of Kinin, became members of the Chetnik movement. But the vast majority of the others eventually joined the partisans. So this is the group of guerrilla fighters that eventually was under the League, I shouldn't say the League, but the Communist Party of Yugoslavia. It was renamed the League in 1952. So during this period after the war, local police officers, members of the Communist Party and then League of Communists, were actually people who had carried out these killings. So to tell this story in its entirety would mean to essentially put their crimes out in public view. And to basically say that the partisan movement itself, while it may have had you know, uh, this idea of brotherhood and unity and these lofty goals, was nonetheless, in many ways, in certain localities, staffed by people who themselves had committed what today would be considered by some people acts of genocide. So this story, in many ways, could not be told in its entirety. It was told selectively through certain parts. This part could be emphasized since, since Matic had been a member of the Communist Party prior to the actual conflict itself. He could be talked about in this way. But to actually tell the entire story would mean to also talk about those who did not act like Matic, of who were, who were, there were many more of them. They were, mu they were much more numerous. And so some of this documentation um, had been held in archives all this time. Uh, and, and I came across it and looked at it and studied it. Um, but it was certainly not a story that was, that was going to be talked about publicly. On these manuscripts, some of them that I found, um, you can see the letters that were sent by publishers that simply says, not for publication. So obviously there was some kind of discussion in which this story itself told, as I've tried to tell it, um, or in some other way which would talk about 
the actual participation of these men who eventually joined the Communist Party because one of the memoirs I read and found actually had lists of the men who had done the killing and then some of whom had become various uh, functionaries uh, in the Communist government after the war. So this was a very kind of hot potato story in that sense, uh, politically dangerous uh, for the Communist authorities in this region. Uh, that would be the main reason why. Yes? Um, I'm curious to know more about the degree of mixing between the three groups prior to the outbreak of violence. Mm -hmm. um, so you suggested that people crossed paths frequently and, and harmoniously, but I'm wondering, like, were there a lot of instances of intermarriage? And if not, how much can we downplay ethnic divisions and ethnic identity? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I don't mean to suggest that this was some sort of, you know, multicultural paradise, right, in which ethnicity or religion doesn't have any bearing to anyone and that there's no tension at all along those lines. Um, so that's one thing to say. There was not, just as in just about every rural region in this part of the world, um, there was not much marriage across uh, the line of religion or later ethnicity or understood together. The, those categories kind of blur together in and out of each other in this particular region. Um, so, but that segmentation or the presence of a sense of ethnic belonging or religious belonging should not be understood as, as, as then, you know, the logical conclusion would be antagonism. Right, that's what I'm trying to suggest. So, I mean, one thing that people don't do, for example, is just look at some of the basic indicators of, of violence in the region prior to the war. Like, let's look at indicators of violent crime. Right? We would do that in any other society. Why not do it here? Like, how many murders take place every year, and are they of an intra-ethnic nature, or an inter-ethnic nature? How many rapes? Uh, these kinds of questions. So I went back and looked at the, the data I could find. And what's fascinating is you have more evidence of intra-ethnic violent crime than inter-ethnic violent crime. So while the perceptions of these categories, is, I'm not denying that it exists. I'm just suggesting the evidence does not lead us to the conclusion that it was highly antagonistic. The greatest political conflicts that took place in this region um, were oftentimes among people of the same political party, same nominal ethnicity, who hated each other and fought endlessly to undermine each other. Whereas people in the voting, uh, the, the election data we have, sometimes voted across inter-ethnic lines, oddly enough. It's hard to understand exactly why, because the data is, is so spotty in certain places. But what I try and do is, is, is suggest in the book, not the irrelevance of ethnicity as a way of seeing, as a way of thinking, and even as an access on which conflict unfolds, but to question whether that should be something we should understand almost in an automatic, deterministic way, because the data simply doesn't bear it out. But no, this isn't a place in which it matters nothing, and say, for example, like Sarajevo by the 1980s, in which we have a large number of inter-ethnic marriages. No. Did you, have a, did you want to follow up with something? No. I, I heard a voice. I think it was the woman behind you. That's why. So go ahead. Yeah. So I have two minor and, and one bigger question. Okay. I'll get a fresh sheet of paper. <laughs> um, I was wondering if, if the research you've done here um, has a lot or a little resemblance to um, what Slavko Goldstein um, found out about Galena in 1941. Mm -hmm. and Yeah. Um, it seems like it has some similarities, but I've heard a lot of different things also, so I'm really wondering about that micro level. 
Um, secondly, um, if you could talk just a little more about the moderates. You said some of them were killed, but that seems to be the main thing in inter-ethnic violence. It's usually the moderates within one's own yeah. community, ethnic, or political order that are the main target first. Mm -hmm. That allows the radicalization. So it seems here it was not common that the moderates would target it. Like they, they, they left or they argued or they shot in the air, but they were not primarily the target of violence. Right. And thirdly, which is my main question, um, and I don't know if, you can, if, if there is a way to answer it, but you seem to have um, reached a really very fine, very um, incredibly productive way of, of looking at this history. And I'm wondering how much of it do you feel is actually present in the individuals that you've interviewed? I mean, do they, because you have a mosaic, you have all of them together, these three main ways of research and so many sources, and you've put it together so, um, I mean, I hate to say intelligent, but, but really, I, I, I was really impressed. Um, you know, just very nice, close reading. And I'm wondering how many, you know, not to paternalize those people, how many of people there have the same subtlety of seeing. Now, it wasn't clear cut. Yeah. Um, there were literally things that happened from minute to minute and choices that were made, and very good choices as well as horrific choices. And they were battling it out. And uh, I'm just wondering how, how much of that kind of conscious or understanding is, is present in the region about that particular yeah um, these are these are all great questions and I'll I'll, I'll take the, the the hardest one first okay. um, why not uh, it's a great question and um, you know it gets right to the heart of what I was trying to suggest toward the end of the talk you know um, will this book be of any use and how might it be of use to people in the region and not just historians right um, can people who've lived through these types of events, um, both in the 1940s, but then, you know, in many ways, the 1990s had a lot of similarities in certain ways. Um, is there a capacity to think in a fine-grained way? Do these arguments, will these arguments resonate? Um, are ethnic categories so entrenched that people would be able to think about them as, as ebbing and flowing and changing over time and mattering and not mattering? Um, I think yes, and here's why. So in my research, and particularly through the interviews, and also just having spent like a lot of my life in the region, which is like a second home to me, um, I've come across a lot of people who particularly went through this last conflict, or, or went through the conflict either directly in Bosnia and Croatia, or indirectly in Serbia, but who were also caught up in a world that turned upside down at a certain point, um, and, and, you know, left them reeling in many ways and, and had to go through, maybe not with, with the physical form of the violence to the same extent, but certainly, uh, you know, it, it going through very horrific things in their own way. Um, I've come across a lot of people who actually still tell the history as a history of complex individuals, as individuals who operated outside of the idea that ethnicity and behavior are congruent and who talk about instances of rescue and talk about people who had been drinking beer together and then became perpetrators the next day. In other words, when people tell their stories of their lives, 
what they actually have experienced. It sounds a lot like the story I'm telling. Maybe not with the same sometimes social science-y tech, you know, kind of, I've tried to not write the book in a very jargony way. So I do think people have a capacity, because um, a lot of the way in which I tell the story emerges out of this close contact with people whom I think have lived and continue to live with a, a sense of humanity at, at a very high level of complexity. Um, and of course, there are others who you know, see the world only in black and white terms, and, and there are reasons for that. But I know more than a few people who don't. And so I, I, do, think, I do think there's some receptivity. The issue of the moderates is a good question. Um, there is a part of the book where I talk about the formation of the NDH in this region. So not just in Kulanvakov, but particularly in the town that was at the center of the region in Bihach which is then where the mobilization took place. You know, there's, a, there's a very much of a top-down element to this. And so in that particular town, you do see a dynamic. And also in Kulinvakov, because the first mayor um, during April and May was actually a moderate. He was part of the NDH regime, but he was eventually moved out of the, off to the side by Miroslav Matievich. So there was a period, I didn't talk about this in the presentation, but there was this period from, say, May, June, and into, into July, where the moderates both military forces, and particularly the civil authorities, are all marginalized for the most part. Um, I'll say that just about the NDH. On the other side, um, among the insurgents, it's a different question. But just a comment about Slavko Goldstein, 1941, The Year That Keeps Returning, um, which is a great book uh, and, and was an inspiring book to me to read uh, when it came out in Croatian. It's now available in English. Um, so Slav Slavko Goldstein um, is, a, is a publicist and a writer and a historian and a journalist. Um, a very important writer, and his son is a historian at the University of Zagreb, um, where he writes about uh, a letter that was, that was found many years after the Second World War that, that was given to him, that was written to him by his father, who was eventually killed uh, after having been imprisoned by the NDH authorities. And so Goldstein finds this letter and begins to write his memoirs, and along the way wants to essentially tell the story of how and why this society he grew up in uh, disintegrated so spectacularly, and tells the story through a few other towns. Um, the book is, is based a lot on his memories. It's based to some extent on what could be called like oral history research that he carried out himself like in the 60s and 70s. Um, not much on archival documents. Um, and so there are some inconsistencies in the book um, and some, I think some generalizations in terms of how top down the violence actually was. And also I, I would say one of the main ways in which I think that book differs from my findings um, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily invalidate his, it may just be a regional difference, is that he tends to suggest that the cleavages and the alignments with certain extreme politics were more in place prior to 1941 among certain key actors. Whereas I just don't find the evidence of it. I see people given an opportunity to put on uniforms and have a monopoly over violence and steal and plunder and who take advantage of it, begin to take part in acts of violence which then snowball very quickly um, into this cascading tit-for-tat violence. And I think. His, in many ways, um, and I don't mean this at all in a disparaging way, sounds a little more typical to me, meaning there are these kind of top-down forces, there are these cleavages that exist, certain people are given a chance to actually act out on them, and the violence unfolds. Okay. Thank you. Any other questions? I think we're almost out of time, or just about out of time. Yeah, last question. What is the role of memory institutions in Boston and the region? Actively looking for the personal accounts, the memoirs, and it sounds like uh, there's a fairly significant number of just languishing in, not languishing, but still in the possession of in, in private in private hands and family hands. Today. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a great question, and I, I think just as a as a short answer, 
<laughs> the great challenge, particularly in Bosnia today, is to somehow, I think, separate memory from politics and separate history from politics, if that's in fact possible. That essentially memory activists themselves, who have some sympathy toward gathering testimonies, um, are always doing so in a very rigidly, for the most part at least, ethnically segmented way in order to advance an identity politics agenda, given the polarized political situation right now. So there is work being done to actually gather together testimonies, the purpose of which I think is to actually add fire to a very overheated political situation, rather than to add light about explaining how and why this violence takes place and what it does to people. And I would love to think, and I'm being overly ambitious at this point, but I would love to think my book could make a tiny contribution toward reorienting the study of the past away from simply being used as a tool of ethnic political conflict and toward one of actually trying to understand how and why ethnicity and violence uh, become enmeshed in certain critical moments and can cause such destruction. Okay. Thank you all so much for coming. Thank you, Max. Thanks.